Hey, Bridgetown, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. I am not teaching today. We have a special guest. My friend Christian Dawson is in town. Christian has been the campus pastor at Northwest University, which is a small liberal arts Christian college a few hours north of us in Seattle. And uh, Christian, from the first day that we kind of became friends a number of years ago, it was very clear in my heart that he has what Jesus called purity of spirit or purity of heart. It was very like obvious. I remember the day that we met that there's a call of God on this man as a pastor and a teacher and a leader. He really has a heart for spiritual formation, which is like instant kind of kindred spirit with me. That's my driving passion in life. And so I'm very happy to tell you some great news. Behind the scenes for the last year or two, Christian and I have become friends and we've been talking about, hey, what if you were to move down and join our teaching team? And after kind of a long a lot of conversation. A number of months ago, actually, he was kind enough to say yes. We had to wait to announce it because of his role with his community back home and for the right time to transition. But Christian is moving here in just a few weeks. He just got an apartment uh, just not far from my house, actually. And he's coming on staff to join our pastoral team. In a pre-COVID world, when we officially kind of hired him, his job was going to be to kind of lead pastor of Sunday evenings, teach, lead worship, lead and shepherd that community. We don't have that right now, so that is still to come. Stay tuned. In the meantime, the plan is for him just to kind of tuck in with our pastoral team and our elders and function as a teacher, pastor, worship leader, and to really kind of give some energy and attention to spiritual formation, in particular for young adults in the season to come. So I can't wait for all of you who don't know him yet to meet Christian and uh, for him to kind of win over your heart as you get to follow Jesus alongside him and the beautiful leaders that we have at our church. Would you please right now, in a, like a little virtual welcome or whatever, would you please welcome my dear friend, Christian Dawson. So I know what you're thinking, and let me just clear the tension. Let me deal with a question that's already on your mind. No, I'm not John Mark Comer. I know, I know, we get mixed up all the time, and if you need help figuring out the difference between us, if you're walking through Portland, maybe you see someone in heart coffee and you're going, wait, is that? Let me help you figure it out right now. I have brown eyes. And that's the main way you can figure out the difference between us. Just look into these bad boys and you'll notice my eyes are brown and his are not. And if you even need more help, I have black hair. And so I don't think um, JM would look the best with black dreads, even though we could check that out and figure that out. Anyway though, uh, on a more serious note, fam, it's good to see you. My name's Christian, and it's an honor to get to be a part of the team here. It's an honor to call you family. And even though there's so many of you, I have only maybe seen your face, but don't know you by name yet. I already wanna say like, I love you. This city has my heart in so many ways. Even though I'm from Seattle, Portland, it's part of the greater Northwest and Jesus changing me. No, for real, y'all. I, I love this city. I love these people. I love this church. And it's an honor to get to be called family with you. And so today, um, I'd like to take a look at Matthew chapter 18, just for a few minutes, consider what Jesus might be inviting you and me and us into. So if you wouldn't mind, would you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 18? I'm gonna read a little bit um, before our context, just to give some context, and then we're gonna jump in at verse 21. And if you wouldn't mind, it's just a custom of mine. If you're willing, if you're able, would you please stand just for the reading of God's word? Here is Matthew chapter 18 and Jesus's words. Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive, shall I forgive my brothers or sisters who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me. I'll pay you back everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion. He released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what he was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he summoned him, his master told him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This is God's word. You know, if you need a title for this topic, if you need a moment or to write it down, um, I wanna encapsulate what we're gonna talk about with this one simple phrase, you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. May we be good hearers of the word and better doers. May we trust what you say. May we love Jesus deeply and may we follow Jesus well. Amen. If you're still standing and if you're younger than your mother, you can sit down. Um, you know, I've been a worship leader for most of my life. And uh, recently, the last couple years, I've been in these positions where I've been preaching and speaking more. And I figured something out. There's a few types of sermons that are pretty hard to preach. The first is the type of sermon where you have to explain so much uh, context and history and you basically lose everyone in the process. It's like if John Mark were to say, hey, open up to Leviticus 19 and most of you would be like, yes, Leviticus is my favorite book of the Bible. Probably not. Or if he was like, oh, open up to Second Ezra and you're like, wait, what? Um, those sermons are hard to preach and they get kind of mundane and boring and it just people kind of drop off. 
The second type of sermon that's hard to preach, though, is the opposite. It's the one where everybody's already heard it before. It's like someone says, open up to John 3.16 or Luke 15, and everyone's like, oh, for God to love the world, or, you know, the parable of the, the sheep, and you're just like, oh, I get it, I know it, I've heard the sermon before, and so what we do most of the time is we kind of write the sermon as it's going. Like, we already know in our mind where it's gonna go and how it's gonna go, and so we don't really have to listen or pay attention or hear. I think sermons are forgiveness, on forgiveness fall into that category. Most of us, if you've been in church for a year or even, or even less, you've probably heard a sermon on forgiveness. You probably know by the end of the sermon, if you read the end of the book, he dies. Sorry, spoiler alert. You kind of know where the sermon's gonna go. You know what happens. And so easily we can tune out what's being said and we just go, oh, that might be for someone else. Oh, that might be for them or for them. And forgiveness sermons, they get kind of difficult though because as soon as someone says forgive, in our minds, in our imagination, every single person listening, every single person watching has a different story that pops into your imagination. I say forgive and one person thinks of this and another person thinks of that. You know, before I even knew I was preaching this text, I was watching a documentary with my friends. It's called Athlete A, it's on Netflix. And it tells the story of Larry Nassar who sexually abused over 250 young women. That story, as I watched that, it just captivated my heart and it's just tragic and horrific and ugly and wicked and sad. I watched the documentary and then later found out I'd be teaching on forgiveness and the first question that came into my heart and into my mind was, well, what does Jesus' teaching on forgiveness mean to these women? to these women who are survivors of abuse. And I can imagine that some of you watching this are going, yeah, 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 forgiveness, but what does it mean to my story? I survived abuse. Or the person who's watching this right now listening and saying, well, my partner lied to me. Or your parent who wounded you, or your friend who betrayed you and left. What does Jesus' teaching on forgiveness say to the person who's been hurt over and over and over again by the same person? What does it say to the person who keeps getting taken advantage of? What does Jesus' teachings on forgiveness mean to you if your trust has been broken by someone or if you've been rejected or shamed or feel uncared for by people? What about those of us who've been walked over, unheard, not believed, or we felt like we've been failed? What does Jesus' teaching on forgiveness mean to those of us who know what it's like to have people who ended up being way different than we expected them to be? People surprised us with who they really were. What about those of us who weren't even noticed or weren't apologized to for the horrible things that happened? What does forgiveness say to the person who's been hurt by the church or to the person who's been hurt by other Christians? And let me be honest, what does Jesus' teaching on forgiveness say to me as an African-American man in 2020 living in America? All of a sudden we realize that the topic of forgiveness, Jesus' teaching is never abstract. You know, there's a lot of topics that we can teach on, a lot of different things in the Bible that we can teach on and think about that, yeah, they're good theology and we might like or we might not, but forgiveness, it's never just an idea. It's not just a theology. It's embodied, it's real, it's life experience, it's messy which is why some of you are going, Christian, yeah, forgiveness, this is gonna be a good sermon for my friend. I might text him the podcast link afterwards, but I can't forgive because you wouldn't understand what I've been through. You wouldn't understand. I think that phrase, that question, might be a little bit of what's going on in Peter's mind. Remember just moments before Jesus, he talks to his disciples, to his followers, to Peter, and says, if your brother sins against you, this is how you should operate. This is how you should quietly reconcile and fix things with them. And so Jesus has given these different teachings on what to do in a situation where forgiveness is needed. But all of a sudden, Peter walks up to him and 
you can imagine Peter doing the thing he always does, Peter like grabbing Jesus, pulling him aside. Jesus is probably going, Peter, if you rebuke me one more time. Uh, anyway, you see Jesus and Peter pulls him aside. He goes, but Jesus, just hear me out for a second. Do you understand what I went through? Jesus, what do I do? If my brother sins against me, should I forgive him seven times? And you and I get that question. Like we understand it quite personally because Peter's not talking in the abstract. Peter's not thinking just generally if someone wrongs me. He asks Jesus, if my brother. Now think about this. Peter is living with the other disciples, all these guys who are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And even more specifically, Peter has his brother Andrew with him. So was Peter talking about Andrew, his brother, or one of the other disciples? Either way, we know Peter's question so personally because it's the question you and I wonder about each day is how do I forgive the people who hurt me, who are close to me? How do I forgive? And so Peter, being clever, being probably like a good Christian, he doesn't just say like the rabbis did of his time. He didn't say, oh, forgive three times. He's not like you and I where he says, oh, you know, give someone a second chance. Forgive him one time. And then now Peter goes, I'm going to forgive him seven times. Which if you're like been in church, you know, seven, it's the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. And so if we were to preach a sermon, oh, forgive seven times. Jesus, forgive seven times. We might be so excited. Yes, to perfection, completion. But Jesus goes, no, 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 dog. Like, wait, hold up. I want you to forgive 70 times seven. 70 times seven, what is, wait. In other words, Jesus saying, Peter, I want you to stop counting. You don't get to count how often you forgive. Jesus doesn't even just give Peter like a, a, a command to obey or something to think through. Jesus gives Peter a story. And so he goes, Peter, listen to me. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he tells the story of this servant. There's one servant that this king had who owed the king over 10,000 talents. Now, what's a talent? No, it's not like, hey, I can play basketball and I can sing. Therefore, like I'm super awesome this high school musical. No, like a talent is actually a form of currency. Um, the currency of the day was called like denarii. Like, and if you know Spanish, it's kind of like dinero. One day's wages is what a denarii is. So this man owed 10,000 talents. One talent was equal to 6,000 denarii or 6,000 days worth of work. So what does 10,000 talents equal? If you want to do the math, you can ask Siri or I'll tell you right now, 60 million denarii, 60 million days worth of work. Do you want to know how long it would take to pay 60 million days worth of work? I already did the math. Don't ask K Siri, simply this, 164,000 lifetimes. Not days, lifetimes. You would have to live 164,000 lifetimes to pay this debt back. In other words, this is a debt this man, not even in his wildest dreams, could he pay. He couldn't pay it. It's insurmountable. And so he looks at the king and he says, be patient with me. Hear these words, be patient with me and I'll pay everything back that I owe which means this man is either like delusional or he's like a liar or he's in super bad denial or maybe he's just deceptive, whatever it might be. Maybe, he, maybe he's like trying to talk his way out of it. Maybe he thinks he can pull a fast one over the king. Maybe he's crooked and he has all these like shady business deals going on and he really thinks, either way, this isn't a good guy. Get the king's response is so interesting. The king doesn't say, no, you've had enough chances. No, you still owe me, he says. And Jesus says that the king had compassion for him and forgave, released the debt. Now, if that were me, I would have lost my mind. Like I remember a couple of years ago, a friend uh, got me a free pass to go to Disneyland and I was like so excited. This past week, I um, paid off my car loan and it was just such a good feeling to no longer be in debt. 
I've worked with college students for most of my career, and I remember a college student a few weeks ago saying, Christian, there's nothing quite like owing money that you just can't pay. There's nothing like having a debt you can't pay. And I'm thinking about that, and the truth is, there's also nothing like being forgiven of a debt that you cannot pay back. What my response probably and hopefully would be would be just like sheer excitement and joy. I can't believe this got paid back. I can't believe I'm released from the debts, but not this man, no. This servant, he instead goes and finds a fellow servant, someone just like him. And Jesus tells us that he began to choke him. He grabbed his neck. You can probably hear the guy saying, I can't breathe, holding the neck so tightly. He said, pay me what you owe. And the man looked at him. The man looked at the other servant. The servant said, okay, just give me time. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back everything you owe. How much did he owe? This second servant only owed 100 days wages, 100 denarii. It's nothing compared to the debt that the first servant owed. Yet the Bible says that this servant is wicked and he was unwilling. He had no desire to release him. The king finds out. The king's frustrated and goes to this man and he says, why in the world do you not show the same compassion for this other servant that I showed you? And he calls him a wicked servant, which says to me that sometimes being wicked isn't just about breaking a rule or doing a bad thing or hitting the litany of quote unquote sins that we have. In this parable, being wicked is not extending the same compassion that you were given. And so the, the, this, this scenario, this moment with this king, the king instead looks at this man who he now calls wicked. And he says, you know what, fine, I release you to the jailers. Wow, what a story. The point being simply this, Jesus expects Peter to be characterized by forgiveness. We hear that and we probably think, yeah, that's good. Like be a forgiving person. And we think about that, but then we kind of let ourselves off the hook, right? We're like, but you don't understand my situation. Yeah, someone else should forgive, but not me. You wouldn't understand. And I think we think that way and we feel that way because we misunderstand what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is not ignoring. It's not forgetting. It's not diminishing. It's not suppressing. It's not condoning. It's not excusing. Forgiveness is not justifying. It's not even understanding the offender or trusting the offender or reconciling with the offender. Forgiveness really is simply this. It is to release. The Greek word is aphemi. It means to dismiss, to let go, to cancel, to give up or to release. So what if the person doesn't want forgiveness? What if they don't even acknowledge what's going on? Well, listen, actually it's incredible because forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation is a two-way street. You need two to reconcile, but forgiveness, it's a one-way street. You only need one person to release. Tim Keller often talks about how every time someone does something wrong or offends, it creates a tally or a debt that needs to be paid. So when someone owes a debt, we have one of two options. The first is to make them pay. For example, someone cuts you off in traffic and what do you instantly do without even thinking about it? Maybe you, you yell a swear word, let's be honest. Or maybe you go and you try to cut them off yourself or maybe you give them the bird or maybe you do the thing where you drive up close to them and you look at them and you hope they feel bad and that the traffic in that lane like really piles up so they don't get to where they're going on time. No, just me. What we're trying to do in those moments, it's not just anger. We feel wronged and robbed and what we're doing is we're trying to make them pay. For me personally, it's when someone says something that seems like it's insulting my intelligence, where I feel like I'm being condescended to. All of a sudden, what I try to do is make them pay. What about you? When someone robs you of time or of money or of reputation or opportunity, we say things like, they took the best years of my life, or do you know what this cost me? You feel like they owe you. And so what do you do? You're harsh towards them 
or you gossip about them, or you withdraw from them, or you act superior to them. You think in your heart and you go, oh, I'll never be like you. All of those actions, what are we really doing deep down? We're making them pay. But Christian, you wouldn't understand. No, 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 friends, family, I do. Offenses they take from us and we can't get it back and someone must pay. So the first option is we make them pay, but the second is that we would pay it ourselves. We release them of the debt and pay it ourselves. We bear the burden. For example, let's say today John Mark um, decides to, like, I just paid off my car, and let's say he decides to go, like, take a baseball bat to my car and just destroy it and total it. And he probably doesn't own a baseball bat, so let's be honest. What if he took, like, all of his books, like, all the books that he has and goes to the, the top of the church, the roof of the church, and start dropping them on my car, like, book after book after book after book and boxes and boxes till it just completely dents and destroys and totals my car. Now, He wronged me, he offended me, he hurt me, he wounded me, he owes me, there is a debt to be paid. So the first option is I can make him pay. Or if I'm a really kind person, maybe I'm forgiving, I release him of the debt, I forgive him. But when I do that, it still has to be paid. So either I take it to the dealership and I pay for it, or maybe I pay by my car being totaled and now instead I have to take the bus or I have to take Uber or I have to walk to work. But all those situations are me paying. It's me holding on, it's me releasing and it's me paying the debt. Or when I see him later and I choose to not be harsh to him, but I choose to be kind, that's actually a form of paying. It's me paying it myself. That's why every time you're kind to someone who's rude to you, it feels like they're taking, ah, it hurts a little bit. Why? Because in that moment, you're paying down the debt. When you hold your tongue instead of gossip, when you don't hurt their reputation, it's a form of paying. Someone has to pay, and that's what makes forgiveness so costly. But you don't understand what they took from me. Why should I be the one who pays. And that's all of a sudden why we get that in 2020, there may not be something more offensive than asking you and I to forgive. It's so offensive to ask someone to forgive an offender. Do you remember playing jailbreak as a kid and you'd be like it and you'd be tagging everybody, they'd all be in jail and then someone yells jailbreak and it makes you just feel so frustrated because why? Well, I did all that work and now They're getting off scot-free, like they don't have to pay. There's no justice. And I think one of the reasons why we don't want to forgive is because we think deep down that there won't be any justice. They'll get away with it. Like one of my favorite shows, it's uh, The Last Airbender. And in this TV show, in this cartoon, um, there's this character named Katara. And Katara's mother was killed when she was just a little girl. By the end of the series, spoiler alert, by the end of the series, she has the opportunity where she confronts the man who murdered her mother. And her friend, right before this confrontation, looks at her and says, Katara, you need to forgive. And Katara screams back, forgiveness is like doing nothing. And ain't that true how it really feels? Forgiveness feels like we're doing nothing. We live in a world where everyone makes sure that they get paid back. Every debt has to be paid. Isn't that cancel culture in and of itself? To constantly make sure that when you hurt me or wound me or wrong me, you pay. And we become the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We sort the wheat and the weeds going, weeds, 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 wheat. And we decide who pays and who doesn't. Truthfully, people like a lot of Christian ethics. We like mercy. We like saying love everyone. We like justice, but most of us really don't like forgiveness. And I think if Jesus were in flesh walking around in Portland, besides in you and me, his church, Jesus, we're walking around in this moment We probably think Jesus calling us to forgive right now in 2020 is too spiritual. We go, Jesus, you don't really understand. 
All of a sudden, Jesus becomes offensive and threatening. But Jesus is not trying to threaten. He's saying that he may understand better than we do. He's exposing what happens if we don't forgive. He's making a truth claim about the way the world really works. You know, not forgiving, it's the weapon of the wounded. Not forgiving, it gives a false sense of power and protection, safety and security. I think security, protection, that's what we're going after when we don't forgive. We put up these walls hoping that if we do these things, if we don't forgive, we'll stay safe. But not forgiving, it eats the soul and it warps the heart and it impacts the body. The Stanford Forgiveness Project did multiple studies that concluded that forgiveness elevates mood and increases optimism, while not forgiving is positively correlated with depression, anxiety, and hostility. When you don't forgive, you release all the chemicals of the stress response. Each time you react, adrenaline, cortisol, and no epinephrine enter the body. When it's a chronic grudge, you could think about it 20 times a day. And those chemicals limit creativity. They limit problem solving. Cortisol and no repinephrine cause your brain to enter what some call the no thinking zone. And over time, they lead you to feel helpless and like a victim. But when you forgive, you wipe all of that clean. Not only that, not forgiving creates generational problems. Do you remember in verse 22 when Jesus responds with the 70 times 7 idea? Well, it's not something new to Jesus. His mind is saturated in the scriptures. Peter asked Jesus what to do with the situation with a brother who's sinning against. So Jesus goes back to Genesis with this story of Cain and Abel, two brothers, one who sinned against his other brother, Cain, who kills and murders his brother. Generations down the line, Cain has a descendant named Lamech. Lamech takes multiple wives for himself. He's not a good guy. And listen to what he says. Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged by God seven times over, then Lamech, it will be 70 times seven or 77 times. You see Cain in his generation, the second generation of humanity, he, he commits murder. There's this anger, this unforgiveness, this despondence in his heart. But generations later, we see how now this form of murder and this retribution becomes something that's celebrated just generations down the line. And don't we know what it's like? Don't we all understand what it's like to see generations of unforgiveness and generations of hate and superiority bottled up inside the body and what it does to people? Not forgiving is often about not seeing others as your sister and your brother. Our posture is often like the wicked servant that can't see that he is the same, that he's, he's no different than the fellow servant. He doesn't see that he is his brother, which means that even if you're watching this or listening and you don't remember or don't have someone to forgive right now, it means we're still not off the hook because so often you and I live like that wicked servant. We live looking at other people thinking, oh, I could never do that. I would never do that thing. I would never be like them. And all of a sudden we realize that we're so similar to this wicked servant. And even if we think in our hearts that, oh, I would never do that thing. I would never commit murder. Jesus teaches that if you even keep anger in your heart, you've already murdered. He says, oh, maybe you feel good about not committing adultery. But if you even have a lust in your heart, if you even do the double take, when you see someone who you think is fine walking down the street and you look twice, all of a sudden you've already committed adultery. And all of a sudden the playing field's level. And we realize that we're all living kind of like the king, trying to settle accounts with every single person. And what happens? Jesus teaches that not forgiving, it leaves you in prison. And when we don't forgive, we become bitter and it leaves us cold and calloused and imprisoned. 
And you think right now, Christian, you wouldn't understand how bad I've been hurt. Like I hear, I hear, yeah, I should forgive, but you wouldn't understand. But the truth is family, I do. Because I see it in my own generation of African-Americans specifically. I see right now one of the staple traits of what the African-American community has been from our genesis and from our exodus in so many ways has been to be people characterized by forgiveness. And I see my brothers and sisters right now having to fight that same fight and go, I'm so tired and I don't know if I wanna forgive. I don't know if it's worth it, if it's really gonna work. I understand it personally. Cause I remember my senior year of high school, me and my dad, we, anyway, this long story short, we got into this fight one night and I'll never forget being outside in the middle of the night in a Denny's parking lot. And I don't remember what we said, but I remember how it felt. And I remember that night being the last night where I said, you know what, I'm never gonna get hurt again like this. And I kind of put up walls. I went to college a year later and multiple years later, I realized that I'd never really released this thing. And every time my dad would call, I wouldn't answer right away unless it was convenient for me. Why? Because deep down I was making him pay. Years went by and I'd be traveling with my band leading worship. I was actually on the Oregon coast at the end of a tour. We were leading worship, getting ready. And I just felt so hurt by my band and so hurt by my team at one point. So I just wrote them off. I yelled at them. I'm pretty sure I just swore at them. And I just was like, I've been hurt. I'm tired. So I went into my room. I went to go take a shower before the church service because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, get right with Jesus or something like that. So I go and I remember turning on the shower water and the bathroom steamy. And I'm like, Jesus, what in the world is going on? God, what do I do? How do I keep staying in relationships with people who are close to me and not get hurt? And I remember so clearly feeling like God said back to me, Christian, you can't. You can't be close to people without the potential of being hurt. Maybe you're like me and you're a peacemaker and you've repressed anger, but this whole time you've been really keeping score and counting debts. And you're realizing that if forgiveness is about releasing, then the opposite of forgiveness means that I'm still holding on. I'm still holding on. I'm in prison. You're not forgiving to stay safe, but really you're locked up. And so we need to forgive, but forgiveness is hard. I mean, we need to forgive. Like I wanna be free, I wanna be safe, I wanna be released, but it's so hard. What resource do we have to actually be people who are forgiving? And truthfully, I don't know a lot of them out there. I don't think conservatism is gonna do it. I don't think progressivism does it. I don't think the idea of forgive and forget makes us forgiving people. I don't think second chances will do it. Cancel culture won't do it. Willpower isn't enough. Being the bigger woman or the bigger man won't do it. Even just trying to obey with all of our might another teaching of Jesus, it's not, does it really make me a person who forgives me? What will enable us to become people who are forgiving? And family, I think the answer sounds weird, but I think it's faith. I think we need faith to forgive. Now, like, I know when we say faith, there's so many ideas and things that come to mind. But just hear me for a moment. Every time you see the word faith in the Bible or even believe, really what it's talking about is trust. It's about being a person who deeply trusts. Essentially this, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, I want you to trust the story. What story? Well, in order to forgive, you and I have to trust that Jesus is right when he says, I don't need others to pay the debt. He's right when he says that I can bring restoration from what was lost, that he can bring healing to what hurts. 
that he is just and he's coming again to fix the world, that Jesus will make right all things, that he'll wipe every tear from every eye. There'll be no more weeping or pain or death. I have to trust that Jesus can actually keep me safe. I have to trust that Jesus will take care of me. I have to trust that he is not lying about the way the world really works or you or I really work. But Christian, you don't understand. No, I do because I remember that night in that bathroom when I was praying and saying, God, you don't understand what it feels like to be hurt by people close to you. How do I do this? And I felt so clear that night. God also said to me, Christian, I do understand. And the truth is, in order to forgive, we have to trust that Jesus understands. Jesus understands what it means to be owed a debt. I mean, you and I, every time we sin, every time we fail, every time we mess up, we actually don't just owe a debt to that person. We owe a debt to God himself because every person you or I is made in the image of God. We owe God a debt. But on the cross, Jesus dies for betrayers. He dies for deniers. He dies for hypocrites. He dies for you and for me. Now, Jesus may have told a story about a servant and a king, but he's the true suffering servant who died to pay the debts that he didn't owe. Jesus is the true servant king who's compassionate and he releases debts at his own expense. He's correcting our misconceptions about who this God is and what he's really like. He's saying that our God, he's compassionate and he has an endless capacity to forgive. He's tenacious in his forgiveness. And maybe the reason that you and I don't really forgive people is because we don't really trust how forgiven we are. I mean, I personally, when I got, I used to think that, you know, when I got saved, when I came into the kingdom, when Jesus got me and rescued me, that from that moment on, Jesus forgave me from everything I'd done before. So this is the moment that I came to Jesus. This is the moment Jesus came to me. This is the moment I was saved. And I was forgiven for everything that happened before that. But what I actually didn't realize till later on in my life, that also I'm completely been forgiven for everything that came after that moment. That Jesus, forgive, Jesus, his forgiveness is not just for my past. It's also for my present. Even on top of that, it's for my future, which means that Jesus has already already died and forgiven you and me of sins that we haven't committed yet, which is really telling me this, we're just catching up to Jesus' forgiveness. My life and your life is a story of catching up to the forgiveness of Jesus, of catching up to the mercy of Jesus, of catching up to the, to the compassion and grace and kindness of Jesus. Oh my gosh, does that liberate the heart? On the cross, Jesus, he cried out, it is finished. The word in Greek is teleo. Do you know what it also translates to? Not just finished, not just completed, but paid. On the cross, Jesus crying out, the debt has been paid. It's completely paid. And I know some of you, you can't seem in your heart to forgive yourself. You're going, Christian, I know forgiving other people, but I can't forgive myself. And can I tell you, friends, can I tell you, family, that Jesus has paid for you already. You don't have to be the one who forgives yourself. Jesus has already paid to release you. Do you remember his words on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even when he's bleeding, he's bleeding forgiveness. The words out of his mouth are forgiveness. He's showing us that he's the same God of Exodus 34, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious and compassionate, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Don't you see how wonderful he is? Don't you see how kind and compassionate he is? Don't you trust the story? In Matthew 18, Jesus has invited his followers to be like children. You realize that children, they forgive. And Jesus said, when your brother sins against you, be discreet and handle it quietly. And if they don't listen, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. And do you realize Jesus treats Gentiles and tax collectors so well? He says, forgive from your heart because you've been forgiven. And I bet Peter didn't even realize in that moment how forgiven he already was. 
But I bet after the cross, he realized, wow, that story wasn't just about a random servant and a random king. It was about me, and it's about you. Jesus invites Peter to trust the story, to trust that he understands, and have faith to forgive. You know, God's forgiveness, it's an act of great compassion towards us. But our forgiveness to others is an act of great trust back towards God. Do you know who understood this and who lived this out in so many ways? It's the African-American church, honestly. I think of Harriet Tubman and Frederick, Fred, Frederick Douglass and people who sang and wrote the Negro spirituals that were all about trusting a God who is just and who sees the oppressed and cares and also is mighty to save and deliver and who also forgives. I think of Fannie Lou Hamer who lived through the Jim Crow and who lived through horrible, horrible situations and lynchings and mobbings, yet she was able to show compassion. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, forgiveness is a pardon, but forgiveness is a process of life and the Christian weapon of social redemption. Here then is the Christian weapon against evil where to go out with the spirit of forgiveness, heal the hurts, right the wrongs and change society with forgiveness. Of course, we don't think this is practical. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who's devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we're less prone to hate our enemies. Or Representative John Lewis, who just passed away and said, you have to have the capacity and the ability to take what people did, how they did it, and forgive them and move on. I don't just think of figures in the past, I think of people in my own life. I asked a few recently, and here's what they said about forgiveness. They said, unforgiveness is like a poison. You drink it expecting the other person to die but I can't walk around refusing to forgive and live the life God has called me to live. I don't think I'm free, another person said, while holding things against people. Sometimes it takes work, but I'm committed to forgiveness as a step in the process of freedom. One other person said, I think forgiveness is important because I know I missed the mark with God and yet he still loves me and forgives me time and time again. And one other person I'm close to said this, they said, I asked God, why would he let me my children, and those who came before me suffer. And I'm quickly reminded of how his son Jesus suffered on the cross for me, my children, and those who came before me. Maybe no one understands us better than Rachel Denhollander. Rachel was an American gymnast. She was talked about in that Netflix documentary, Athlete A. At the age of 15, she was sexually assaulted by Larry Nassar. She was the first woman to publicly accuse Nassar, who because of her and so many other brave and strong women was later found guilty of sexually assaulting roughly 250 women. When their day in court came, Rachel had the opportunity to settle accounts with this man who wronged her so much. She had the opportunity to talk to him face to face and to make this wicked man pay. Hear what she said. In our earlier hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. 
You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if a good deed can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight, guilt, so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. But you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Rachel trusted the story. She trusted what Jesus says. She found what we're all looking for. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting it doesn't mean suppressing. It doesn't mean ignoring. It doesn't mean validating. It doesn't mean condoning or excusing. It doesn't mean understanding, trusting, or reconciling. Forgiveness means release. And you and I need it. And Jesus extends it. Family, I am sorry for the ways that so many of you have been hurt. I'm sorry for the ways that so many have been wronged. I'm sorry for the ways that Christians have honestly failed you, that God's people have hurt you, that your family has wounded you. I'm sorry for all of the hurt and the offenses and the wounds that we carry just from life. But I hope that you would experience what Christ has done for you and that it would give you a release and that you'd be able to release it yourself. What would your life look like if you had the faith to forgive? What would it look like if you trust the story? What if it looked like if your faith and your forgiveness was just tenacious, where no matter what came against you, you're able to release? Let's be honest, what will it look like? What will our world look like? What will our city look like if we don't become people who are forgiving? What will our city look like if we aren't people who release? My invitation for you today, it's actually not the command to forgive. Isn't that odd? Like, I'm not gonna get to the end of the sermon as we're at right now, and I'm not telling you, you need to forgive. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying to Peter, first of all. I think what I'm really inviting you to first and foremost, before even asking you to forgive, my invitation to you is to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has for you. Like re-experience it, remember it, trust it. Let it go so deep into your heart that it melts it and it changes you and it reshapes you and it molds you to be a person who just can forgive and release. My invitation for you is to step into the highly offensive and countercultural way of living. I'm inviting you to trust and release. Friends, you don't even understand how forgiven you are. And I pray that that would liberate you. It would give you the faith you need to forgive. Or as the Apostle Paul said to the Colossians, 
when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, Jesus made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death and of debt with obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken away by nailing it to the cross. Therefore, as God's holy ones, as his chosen ones and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. You can trust the servant King Jesus. He understands. <laughs>